0: All right, praise God. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Open up your Bibles to Luke 24, 13 through 33. Luke 24, 13 through 33. We want to encourage you to bring your Bibles every Sunday, but if you didn't today, that's okay. It's going to be on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be on your screen at home. But Luke 24, 13 through 33. This is God's word. That very day, two, meaning two of Jesus' disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So Jesus went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory and we give you all the praise. And Lord Jesus, I pray and ask now that you would speak through this word. That you would, Father God, hide me behind your word. And that you would open our hearts to receive whatever it is you want to say. And Lord Jesus, through this glorious passage, we know that you are in the midst of your people. And you want to reveal yourself to us. So Lord God, reveal yourself to us today. Father God, as we look ahead to Advent, I pray that today would mark a sweet time of fellowship with you during this season that we would begin to just draw near to you starting today if we haven't already we thank you in Jesus name we pray amen okay well today is the very first sunday of december and like we do every single year we're going to be starting a new sermon series for advent so praise god we got through second peter we are in a whole new series and advent means coming as in jesus first coming as a baby that's what that word means, Advent. And this Advent season leading up to Christmas is going to be a season of reflection and preparation. Okay, what do I mean? Well, reflection, because we're going to be meditating and reflecting on who Jesus is and why he even came here. And so we're some songs about that. But to go even deeper into that, reflection. And number two, preparation. To actually prepare ourselves to celebrate and worship Jesus on Christmas Day. So it's not a day to just wake up with bushy hair and rip open gifts, right? That's part of it. That's fun. But we are here to worship the Lord. We are here to prepare ourselves to celebrate, remember again why he came. So Advent is regarding all of that. And ultimately, Advent is all about Jesus. It's going to be all about Jesus. So knowing, worshiping, and communing with Jesus again in a fresh new way. So that's what I've been praying, that as our church heads into Advent season, which are the weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to encounter Jesus in a fresh new way. Amen? That's my prayer. And Jesus is unlike any other historical figure because he is not merely just an example to follow. Oh yeah, Jesus. Maybe we'll learn more things about him. No, it's more than that. He's not just a character to even inspire you. Oh yeah, Jesus. Maybe he'll move me to do some things this year. No, it's even more than that. But after dying for our sins, he rose back to life and he is alive today. Amen. He is alive. And the Bible repeatedly says that he dwells in the midst of his people. So he is here in a very real way. Jesus is here in the midst of his people by his spirit. So Jesus, he is here. You can even pray as you're sitting here. Hi, Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is here. And this is the one that we are drawing near during advent we want to draw closer to jesus the living jesus and the presence of jesus once he breaks into your life changes everything he changes everything and so for those of us here who are believers you already know this but what changed your life completely when you became a christian was it a new set of ideas that changed you was it a new moral code that changed you was it just forgiveness as powerful as that is that your sins are forgiven, yes, that'll change you. But was that alone what changed you? No, it was the person and presence of Jesus breaking into your life and he changed everything. Amen? He changed everything. And so we're gonna see that today. But Jesus is in the midst of his people and when he comes and breaks into people's lives, everything changes. And so in our passage today in Luke 24, Jesus came alongside two of his discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus. And when he came to them, he changed their hearts completely. So this is such a beautiful, amazing picture. But their hearts went from sad and slow to believe. It says that in verses 17 and 25. They were sad and slow to believe. And then by verse 32, their hearts were what? Burning. It went from sad and not believing to burning, burning, burning for Christ and for everything he did. And so today we're gonna look at how Jesus did that. I wanna see how Jesus came alongside these discouraged disciples and lit a new fire in their hearts for him. And let's be honest, some of you guys desperately need that fire because you don't have a fire in your heart for God. You don't even know if Jesus is near and yet Jesus is in the midst and he will light a fire in your heart. And so when you look at this passage we see Jesus clearly doing specific things to light a fire in these disciples' hearts. And as we look at these things, I want him to do the same thing for us during Advent. I want him to also light a fire in our hearts. But what he did is he diagnosed their hearts. He examined and he revealed to them what was in their hearts causing the problem. And then he opened the scripture so that they would see christ in all the scriptures especially the old testament and then he offered them intimate fellowship with him through that bible study through that revelation of christ throughout the old testament he then drew them into intimate fellowship and as all these things happened there was a fire a fire got lit and again i want to emphasize the same jesus here in our midst He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is going to do the same things for you. I know he will. He will light the same fire in your heart. So he diagnosed their hearts, he opened the scriptures, and he offered them intimate fellowship. So first, he diagnosed their hearts. Look at verse 15 through 17. It says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. So here are two of Jesus' disciples. We don't know exactly who they are. We hear their name later on. One was named Cleopas. Some Bible scholars believe the other one was Luke. That's why Luke is the only one who shares the story. Maybe this was Luke, Cleopas and Luke. We don't know. But what we do know is that these disciples were walking very discouraged because of the events that had just happened. Jesus shortly before, a few days before, was crucified publicly in a horrific way. And then he was buried. And there were rumors that he had come back to life, but they weren't sure. And so here they are talking about all these things. And then Jesus came right beside them. Although they didn't recognize him immediately. And so they were in the midst of Jesus. And one Bible scholar, David Garland, who wrote a fantastic commentary, by the way, on Luke. So if you're ever looking for a commentary on Luke, David Garland is the one to get. But David Garland said this, the disciples are walking both in a fog of doubt and in the presence of the risen Messiah at the same time. And how true is that for so many believers? But the disciples are walking in a fog of doubt and in the presence of the Messiah at the same time. And isn't this so true for all of us? But how many of us come to church in a fog of doubt, we lift our hands, sing songs, we worship Christ, listen to his word, and then we leave after having spent our time in the very presence of Christ, we leave in the same fog of doubt, right? We're in a fog of doubt in the very midst and presence of Jesus. How many of us have come to community group in a fog of doubt, we sit through a Bible study, we share, we pray for each other, and then you leave in that same fog of doubt? after having been in the presence of Christ. And I don't say that to condemn anybody, but I say it to just point out the reality that this can happen so often to believers. But how is that possible that we can know the risen Christ, we can be in the very midst, in the presence of the risen Christ, and it's like, I don't know. I don't feel it, (laughs) right? I don't know, something's not working for me. Christianity might not be for me, right? I don't feel anything. Not that it has to be about feelings. But how is that possible? Well, we know it's possible because these disciples were exactly like that. They were walking both in a fog of doubt and in the presence of the risen Christ at the same time. And the reason why this was possible is because their eyes were closed, Luke said. Luke said their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That doesn't mean that God closed their eyes, it just simply meant. Their eyes were already closed. They weren't seeing spiritually, and God chose not to open them yet. He would eventually, but not yet. So their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So here's the situation. Two disciples of Jesus in the very presence of Jesus, just down and discouraged. And then it goes on, verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor? So Jesus asked, like, what's going on, right? Why are you guys so sad? And then Cleopas said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. So here we see an amazing thing. But as Jesus was patiently just kind of asking questions, he was trying to draw out of them their hearts. He was trying to reveal to them their own hearts. And this is what Jesus just gently began to reveal. But wrong expectations that led them to a crushed hope. So this is the first diagnosis that Jesus revealed of their hearts. But these are disciples of Jesus. Again, I emphasize, in the very midst of Jesus, they're like right next to him. And yet they had wrong expectations that led to a crushed hope in their hearts. And so this was the condition of the two disciples. Only a week ago, they were right beside Jesus. They were spiritually on fire. And we know what that's like, right? How many of you guys were on fire when you first came to faith? Maybe even like earlier this year, you were on fire for God. Well, these disciples, only a week ago, they were on fire for Jesus. They were excited. They were passionate. They were ready to see things happen. And everything was pointing to Jesus being the Messiah. There was tons of excitement. In fact, the whole city was, you know, in an uproar. Like, who is this, right? Is he the long-awaited king, the Messiah, who's going to free us from the Romans? Is he going to set up his throne in Jerusalem? Is he going to usher in God's kingdom, the future age of peace, prosperity, eternal life? This is what they meant when they said in verse 21, we had hoped. We had all this hope, right? A week ago, we're on fire for Jesus. I had all this hope. We had all this hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. Again, how many of you guys were on fire for Jesus when you first came to faith? Think about what was in your heart. There was hope. You know, my life wasn't going too well. A lot of things weren't working out. I was depressed. Suddenly something's different. It's new, right? There's hope. This is the hope they're talking about. We had hoped that He was the one. And this wasn't just a normal hope, but it was a hope that they were hanging their lives on. Their entire future was hanging on this hope. Again, we don't understand that, right? That's why many people come to church and become Christian, at least initially. I'm thinking my whole life on this. And then in a couple days, everything changed. Jesus started talking about his own death. He started talking about departing. What are you talking about, leaving? Where are you going to go? One of his disciples, Judas, betrayed him. Oh, Judas, right, that loser. He betrayed Jesus. And then the religious leaders arrested him, condemned him, and then they saw Jesus publicly rejected, tortured, abused, And then crucified. I mean, they saw that all in front of them. And so put yourselves in the shoes of these disciples. That's a lot to take in, right? That is a lot to see happen to the person you're banking your whole future on. All my hope is on that person. And then he got crucified. And so here they are. They went from on fire to confused to deeply discouraged. Okay, this is the disciples. And again, this is not hard to relate to because so many Christians go through this roller coaster again and again. It's a vicious cycle. And so confusion and discouragement came to them, and why? Well, again, it was because they had wrong expectations that led to a crushed hope. That was the first diagnosis. And so this mismatch of expectations are often inside believers, and it will leave believers confused and discouraged. You know, I've been a pastor for a long time now, for many years, and I get to talk to a lot of people. And by far, the most common reason why people get discouraged in their faith, maybe some of you, I'm not talking about you. You can take it that way if you want, but I'm not talking about you. This might be true of you. But whenever I talk to people, the most common reason they get discouraged in their faith is because they had one expectation of God, and then God had a very different expectation for them. And there was a mismatch And so then as that mismatch began to play out, they got crushed. Their hope died. So what am I talking about? Well, most believers, they just get saved. They launch into their walk with God expecting, you know, God is awesome. He is great. And you know what? He's going to bless me. Right? That's why God is here. That's why I worship him. He's going to bless me and he's going to protect me from suffering. And that's pretty much it. That is the sum total of their theology on God. God is here to bless me and protect me from suffering. And the moment something kind of creeps in and, you know, maybe it kind of avoided God's attention for a second, God's going to get rid of it. So they walk through that. That is not how God sees it. Yes, God is a blesser. He will bless. Yes, God is a protector. He will protect. But oftentimes his blessing might look very different but oftentimes his blessing in our lives requires suffering. What? (laughs) And you guys know that, but we need to hear it. We need to be reminded of it. But oftentimes his blessing requires suffering. And why is that? It was because of what God expects of you. Not your expectations, but his expectations. And here's what God expects. God expects to even allow blessings in the form of suffering sometimes, why? Because that will begin to transform us. It will cause us to endure. It will cause us to grow. And ultimately, it will make us like his son. And that's the ultimate expectation God has. Everything God is doing in our lives is so that you and I will become like Jesus, his son. That is the greatest blessing God is always looking at. So we're looking at all these different things. Oh, God, bless me. New job. More money. Bigger house. Oh, God, take away suffering. And sometimes that is very important. We need that. God will provide for our needs. He will take away suffering. But God, my, my grandma is sick. God, please. I'm sick. Heal. And God will. But in the midst of that, God's saying, not yet, though. I have a greater blessing. I want you to become like my son. I'm making you into the likeness of my son. And so do you say that mismatch? The whole time we're like, God, what are you doing? You're supposed to bless me, protect me. No, I'm making you into my son into the likeness of my son and so then as that mismatch grows as the fog thickens what happens we're confused and i'm telling you it might seem clear right now it's like of course roy you why, know why are you going over this well i'm telling you when it's happening to you it's very hard to see and by far this is the number one reason why so many people are discouraged when i talk to them like oh how's it going i don't know not good how's your spiritual walk oh dry i don't know god seems far Well, what's going on? Guaranteed mismatch. Well, I'm expecting this. God's not doing this. I'm wanting this. God's not giving this. But all the while, God's saying, no, I love you and I am blessing you. I am making you into the likeness of my son. And so this confusion discouragement came to the disciples. They had this kind of naturalistic understanding. They were out of sync with God's spiritual truth. And so then discouragement came. Discouragement came. And so why would God let this happen? Okay, why? Okay, Okay, yeah, sure. You're going to turn me into the likeness of your son, but why is it taking so long? Why are our hopes so crushed? Well, in this story, God let it happen because he was wanting to change their expectations and change their mindset. And this is what makes this story so beautiful. But God is patiently working with you in your trials. He's patiently working with you in your hopelessness. Why? to change the way you're thinking. See, it's never God's experience to let you just experience trials and that's it. To leave you in discouragement, that's it. But he wants to bring you through that in order to produce something new. So that's what we see here. He's producing something new. So think about this, but of all the things that Jesus could have done on the way, or I, I'm sorry, on the day that he resurrected, what did he do? He could have appeared in Jerusalem as the king. He could have ridden in on a chariot, but of all the things he could have done on the day he resurrected, he showed up on a dusty little road to a little town seven miles away from Jerusalem, and he hung out with these two disciples. And remember, the road to Emmaus is not a parable. This is actually an account of something that happened. And we know this because of the context, but we also know this because of the disciple's name, Cleopas. This was likely somebody that Luke mentioned because everybody reading Luke's gospel would have known Cleopas, but this actually happened. And again, why? So that God would change their mindset. So that was the first diagnosis: is He wanted to reveal in their hearts this wrong expectation, which led to a crushed hope, and He began to change that. He's changing the expectation. He's beginning to light a new fire in their hearts. And so even during this Advent season, I want you guys to be encouraged that if you're, you know, not in a good state, the risen Jesus is here. And he is going to meet with you if you want to meet with him. And as he begins to meet with you, he's going to begin to change you. He's going to begin to change things in your mind. When you are at the lowest point, the most discouraged, losing all hope, God will come gently. You might not even recognize him at first, and he's going to begin to rekindle hope in you but it's going to begin with a change of expectation. But here's another deeper diagnosis Jesus revealed. Look at verse 22 through 25. Here's a deeper diagnosis. It says, moreover, here's Cleopas talking, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive some of those who are with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So did you guys catch that at the very end? O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So here, Jesus, the great physician, went even deeper with the diagnosis. Did they have wrong expectations? Yes, absolutely. Were they hopeless? Yeah, they were crushed. But it went deeper than that. And so here's the deeper diagnosis that Jesus pointed out. You're not believing in my word. You have unbelief in God's word. One commentator said, John Bloom, he said, the disciples' outward inability to recognize Jesus was a reflection of their inward unbelief in God's word and what it says about Jesus. So that's the deeper reason they were so discouraged. The disciples' outward inability to recognize Jesus was a reflection of their inward unbelief in God's word and what it says about Jesus. So it's their unbelief. So underneath their wrong expectations and crushed hope was unbelief. So that was the much deeper problem. So everything that happened to Jesus so far was according to his word prophesied in his word and so the word of god is the issue the word of god that is true and alive the word of god that speaks to every situation every issue that they were facing the disciples knew these prophecies okay, from a little boy they were jews they would have memorized huge chunks of the bible they would have known all of these things but they just didn't believe them and that's the same as well again not to like divulge too much information. But when I I meet with a lot of people, even people here, a lot of times people are discouraged. There's mismatch and expectation. But guaranteed, underneath that, there's also a forgetfulness of God's word. They forgot what God has said. They forgot the promises of God. And I'm there. I can relate to that. But we forget. We don't believe. And so these disciples knew the prophecies, but they didn't believe them. And because of their unbelief, they didn't experience the living word. And that's why when trials came, fire of God blew out. No more fire. I don't have passion. I don't know. I feel dry. I don't know. Maybe church isn't for me. Maybe God isn't for me. That's a lie from the enemy. (laughs) And so the enemy knows this far better than we do. But he knows that unbelief in God's word is the most effective extinguisher of your fire for God. He knows that even more than persecution, and he'll use both. He'll use unbelief, he'll use persecution. But he knows, because he has been around for a very long time, that persecution, it can't extinguish the fire of God, but sometimes it can even stoke the fire, can it? Right, sometimes when you're going through a hard time, you actually get even more passionate for God, right? Kind of like when you're at a campfire and you take a stick and you poke it when it's dying, what happens? The flames come up again. So sometimes you're kind of like drifting through lives, you're not doing well, and then suddenly you get like a huge like F in your class. Or you get laid off from your work. What happens? Oh my gosh, prayer meeting, right? I'm going to prayer. I'm going to read my Bible. And so it's kind of like that stick shoved into the campfire. It stokes the fires even more. And so the enemy can know that. He knows that. And so even more than persecution, the enemy will use unbelief. He'll begin to whisper to us. He'll distract us. Causes us to forget. So isn't this so true in our lives? That far more than persecution, it is unbelief that will kill your fire for God. And unbelief in God's word is growing. You know, I've seen this trend ever since the 90s when I started out as a Christian. Started out in ministry. But we are way beyond that now. Way beyond that. I remember D.A. Carson, he's a seminary professor uh, out in Chicago. But he said, every year as the freshman class comes in, I am shocked at how much Bible literacy is spreading. Like the freshman class coming into seminary just know nothing virtually now. They know nothing. So there is a steady erosion of knowledge in God's word, but even belief in God's word. So belief in God's word. So where is your belief in the word? Do you believe in the word? Do you believe it's true? Psalm twelve six, the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible. Like gold refined seven times. Do you know the word? Do you know the power of the word that is? It is alive. Hebrews four twelve. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, do you know the word, and do you believe in it? And brothers and sisters, when I say believe, I don't just mean some random verses here and there. Oh yeah, I think that's true. I think Noah's ark really is true. (laughs) There really was a flood. Those things are important. But what I'm talking about specifically is, do you believe the core message of the Bible, which is that Jesus Christ died for me as a sinner? I'm a sinner. He died for me. And then he rose again, and then he ascended to heaven and poured out his spirit, and now I have eternal life in him. I have community with others in him. Do you believe in that core message? Do you believe in the grace of God, the gospel message? Well, if you don't, Jesus is going to be patient. He's going to keep working with you. And so here's the second thing he did. After diagnosing the problem, right? Wrong expectations, unbelief, leading to crushed hope. And then here's the second thing he did. He opened the scriptures. He opened the scriptures. So look at verse 32. The disciples. This is the end now. The end of the the time with Jesus after he vanished. They said, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? How many guys are longing to have a new fire for God this season? I hope you guys are all hoping that. Or maybe even the new year, right? Yeah, 2024 is going to be a good year. I want a new fire for God. Well, what are you guys thinking of doing to light that fire? Some people go, I'm gonna go to a retreat. I'm gonna go to you know, this conference, I'm gonna read a new Christian book. Those things are helpful. But look at what it says here. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us, while he opened to us the scriptures? So this is what Jesus did. He began to open the scriptures because Jesus knew as the great physician, this is what's going to light the fire in your heart. And then it says in verse 26, 27, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so right there, I don't have time to go into the details of the structure of the passage. But if you were to go back and kind of break down the way the passage looks, it's kind of like a chiastic structure. Chiastic structure means like it's building up, A, B, C. And once you get to C, it goes backwards, B, A, and then it ends. So A, B, C, C, B, A. And right at the climax, the middle is this part right here. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So that's the climax of this entire story. is Jesus began to open the scriptures to show them through the entire Old Testament, everything is said about him. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for not understanding this, but he said earlier in John 539, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. You guys are always going to Bible study. You're memorizing the Bible. You love the Bible and yet you miss the whole thing. Why? Because you don't know me. You don't see me in the Bible. And so Jesus knew more than anything, if they were going to get a fire lit in their hearts, they needed to see Jesus in Scripture, and that would light the fire. That would light the fire. That is the tip of the spear that would pierce their hearts. You know, so many times when you read the Bible, if you're like me, you'll be like, okay, that was good, but, you know, it doesn't really speak, right? It's just a bunch of information, maybe historical facts, maybe even some good, you know, sayings to guide you. But then why is it that the Bible so often doesn't pierce your heart? Well, it's because you're not seeing Christ in it. That is the tip of the spear. You're not seeing what Jesus did for you in every page of Scripture, and that pierces your heart. That Jesus, though I am a sinner, died for me out of pure grace and love. And then he rose again and he saved me. You're not seeing that. You're not seeing that grace wherever you are in Scripture. And so this is what Jesus was trying to open up. For his disciples, I want you to see me. And so he didn't focus as he began to have this Bible study on this long road. By the way, I, I would have loved to have been there, you know, get a little tape recording. Not a tape. Podcast? Not a podcast. What do you call those things now? MP3 recorders. <laughs> it would have been great to have an MP3 recorder to hear what Jesus said, maybe one day in heaven. But as Jesus began to teach and unfold this Bible study on this Emmaus Road, Maybe it lasted for several miles. It was a seven-mile road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. But he didn't focus on teaching them things like literary genre, historical background. He didn't talk about all these things. They're important. But no, the risen Jesus, who was days away from ascending back to heaven, basically took them through this Bible study to see one thing, the gospel, him. Every page of scripture. And what was the result? Fire. Their hearts began to burn. They were lit on fire for Jesus. So then, how are we going to have the same kind of fire lit in our hearts? Because we don't have Jesus physically here now. His spirit is here, but he's not physically here to teach us the same Bible study. So, so how do we see Jesus on every page? Well, the way we're going to see Jesus on every page of the Bible, including the Old Testament, is by seeing how a passage in scripture fits into the overall redemptive plan of God, climaxing in Jesus Christ once and for all. Okay, Wherever you are in the Bible, maybe you're in the Psalms, the Proverbs, Genesis, wherever you are, the historical books, you got to see how that connects into the overall redemptive plan of God, climaxing in Jesus. Brian Chapel, he's a great teacher and author, seminary president as well, but he... Talked a lot about this, and he explained four ways a passage of scripture, even if it doesn't mention Jesus at all, but four ways any passage in scripture can fit into God's overall redemptive plan. Climaxing in Christ. Here are four ways. So, no matter where you are in the Bible, a passage can predict God's redemptive work in Christ, it can predict it. So, these would be prophecies about Jesus' life, like his crucifixion, like Psalm 22. So when you're reading Psalm 22, it's so clear, so evident. This is talking about Jesus' crucifixion. So it can predict. A passage can also prepare God's people to understand aspect of Jesus' redemptive work. It can prepare. So for example, all the laws in the Old Testament and all the different things that God talks about in the law of God and all the purity rituals and all the things that you need to do to not be in error and all of that, that is preparing his people for the person who would come one day to make us like that, who would fulfill all of it in our place and then make us pure like that. So that's one example. It can prepare you to understand Jesus' redemptive work. Number three, a passage can reflect aspect of God's redemptive work in Christ. And here are two questions you can ask. These are from chapel. What does the text reveal of God's nature that provides redemption? So for example, God's grace. When you're reading about God's grace, that is the same grace that saved you, that gave you Jesus. Okay, what is this teaching me about some aspect of God that brought redemption, like his grace? Okay, number two, another question. What does the text reflect human nature that requires redemption? Why did Jesus have to come and then die on a cross? Okay, what, what is it about my life that required that? So a Bible passage might talk about your love for idols, how easily you sin. How easily we get tempted, whatever it may be. But what is it about us that required redemption? So that's a third or a second question you can ask in a third way. Any passage can point you to Christ, it can reflect Jesus' redemptive work. And then, number four, a passage can show the results of God's redemptive work in Christ, it can show the result. So for example, when we read different passages in the Psalms or Proverbs, you read a lot about blessings and shouting for joy. Or maybe you're reading something about the fruits of the Israelites as they obeyed God. There was a lot of fruit that God brought and blessings and prosperity. Well, what is all that? Those are the results of your redemption in Christ. So as you're reading that, you're like, oh, this is what will happen to me because I believe in Jesus, because Jesus came and died for me. So do you see that? These are all just powerful ways. Wherever you are in the Bible, it can all point to Jesus. It can predict what he did. It can prepare you to receive what he did, to reflect on different aspects of what he did. And then finally, look at the results of what it'll produce in your life. And it's everywhere in the Old Testament. And as we consistently do that, day in and day out, your eyes will begin to get opened. You're gonna see Jesus. Just like these disciples on the Emmaus Road, their eyes were opened. They're like, didn't your heart burn within you as he opened the scriptures to us? Your heart will begin to burn. And you're going to see who Jesus really is in all his glory, in all his 3D glory. You know, Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 3.14. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Did you guys hear that? When the Jews read their Old Testament Bible, there's a veil. They don't see what it's really about. Why? Because only in Christ is it lifted. You got to have Jesus. You got to see Jesus if you're going to have the veil taken off the Bible. So many of us, the Bible does nothing. It doesn't speak. It doesn't move us. It doesn't change us. Why? Because you don't see Jesus. You don't read it with that lens. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, this message is actually an intro to this entire series. So what I look forward to doing is for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at different Old Testament passages, passages that you're not familiar with pointing to Christ. But we're going to look at different passages that all point to Christ and looking at what he did, and who he is, and hopefully as we do, there's going to be a fire lit in our hearts. Amen? There's going to be a fire. But listen to this quote on how the whole Bible really is about Christ and his glory. I believe it originally came from Sinclair Ferguson, but, but listen to what he said. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is now imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whether he went, not knowing where he went, to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love for me, now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. See, Jesus is reflecting all of that. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved, So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the better true rock of Moses, who, struck, who was struck with the rod of God's justice and now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, who tr- the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for us and saves his stupid friends. I like that one. <laughs> Jesus the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Talking about he defeated the Goliath. Jesus the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly palace. Who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in So Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so that the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible really is about him, not you. Amen? It's about Jesus. Again, if you don't read the Bible like that, it's going to do nothing. The best you're going to get is, oh, that's a good tip for my life oh yeah, that kind of gave me a pick-me-up today because I feel a little down. That's all you're gonna get out of the scriptures. But you must see Christ. And as Jesus begins to open it up for you, fire. You're gonna begin to burn. The Bible is gonna become the most fascinating thing you've ever read. You're gonna begin to devour it. And how many of you guys would love to get to that point in your Christian life where you devour the word of God? And let's be honest, so many Christians don't do that. You don't read your Bible. You barely even open it. This is the only time you even hear the Bible when you come to church. And yet God has spoken. He will light a fire in your heart. How many of you guys want to get to a point where it is fire when you read it? You know, these days, whenever I read the Bible, I share this with my elders, but I feel like God is just speaking to me so much. And it's not because I'm such a lovable person. God's often rebuking me. He's disciplining me. But I just hear him all the time when I read the Bible. And every time I leave my quiet time and I go, you know what? That's fire. That is fire. Even if it was a rebuke, I go, gosh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I repent and I go, I want to live for you today. It is fire in your bones, Jeremiah says. So the whole Bible is not about you, but it is really about him, and that is the good news. You're not trying to figure out your life on your own. You're not trying to make something happen. Oh, yeah, give me some good tips, God, so I could build a better life. No, that is death. If you want life and fire, you got to see Jesus and what he did for you. He will change you. He will make and build a life that you need. Going back to Brian Chapel, the seminary professor, but he said people are like Swiss cheese. We're full of holes. We're full of need and lack, and what can fill these holes? You have so much lack and need in your life. I know, because I do too. What's gonna fill it? He goes on, principles? Some good things you read in here? Hard work? What can fill these holes? Only Christ and what he did for us. Amen. And that's the truth, brothers and sisters. That's why Paul said, when you read this Bible, if you don't have Christ and see Christ, there's a veil. No holes are getting filled in. Nothing is being done. And yet, if you come to him, then Jesus will begin to fill those holes in your life. He will begin to become everything for you. Near to the village, Emmaus, to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. So after Jesus gave this amazing Bible study, the Bible study of a lifetime, <laughs> it changed their lives. But after this amazing Bible study on the Emmaus Road, they finally arrived, right? They got to the disciples' home. And here, Jesus did something kind of funny, but he prompted them to invite them in. Jesus can do that. (laughs) He can get us to, you know, invite invite him in. But basically, he acted like he was going farther, and it was already late at night. It was getting dark. And by acting like he was going farther, they couldn't help but invite them in. Why? Because back in ancient times, it was very dangerous to travel at night. And so any good hospitable host would say, oh, no, 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 please don't travel, but come in. Right? Stay with us the night, and you can leave tomorrow morning. And so Jesus, acting like he was going further, got them to invite, invite him in. And this is an important point because I want you guys to see that Jesus himself wants to fellowship with you, right? It's not like us banging on the door, Jesus, let me in. It's the other way around. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus is the one banging on the door, let me in. Let me in. Why did you shut the door in my face? Let me in. So Jesus got these disciples to let him in. He pretended to go farther, right? So, "Oh, no, no, please don't. Come on in." And then once Jesus came in, he had fellowship with them by sharing a meal together. Now, some people think this was the communion meal. We're going to have communion today, but it probably wasn't. And here's why, just quickly. But Luke wrote this story, and if this was actually communion, he would have mentioned certain things like the cup Earlier in the Lord's Supper passage that he wrote, he mentioned the cup twice. Didn't mention the cup at all here. So he would have mentioned certain things like the cup. He didn't. Also, blessing and breaking bread together in ancient times happened at every meal. I mean, this was like every meal you had. You would always pray, bless the meal, and break the bread. And so this was nothing special. It was just a regular meal. And then finally, there was something about Jesus' act of blessing and breaking the bread in front of them that triggered a memory. I don't think it was something like voodoo or, excuse me for saying that. It wasn't like, you know, abracadabra, boom, oh, my eyes are open. It wasn't that. But there was something about Jesus' act of doing that. It triggered a memory, and their eyes were open. They're like, oh, this is Jesus. And so what was that memory? Well, it couldn't have been the Last Supper because Cleopas was not there. And if the second disciple was Luke, Luke was not there. Only the 12 original were there. So then what What was it? What triggered their memory? Well, Bible scholars say most likely this could have been the feeding of the 5,000. So Cleopas would have been there. Other disciples, many disciples were there. And when Jesus at that great event where he did that miracle, multiply bread and fish, when he broke the bread and blessed it, something about that triggered a memory. They're like, Jesus, this is Jesus. So whatever it was, Jesus wanted to fellowship with them. He wanted to fellowship intimately with them. And as they did, their eyes were opened once and for all, completely and fully. So seeing Jesus finally, in a full way, lit that fire completely in their hearts. So all of this worked together in conjunction as Jesus began to reveal and diagnose their hearts. As he began to open the scriptures, revealing himself in their And then finally, he came in and intimately fellowship with them. And then, boom, their eyes were finally opened. And so, brothers and sisters, you can also have the same eyes opened this Advent season, truly. Let me just mention two quick practical things, and then we're going to come to a close. But you can literally physically open the word. (laughs) Amen? So Jesus will open the word spiritually, open your eyes and open the word spiritually. But you can physically open the word and read it. But this is worth repeating. I've said this before, but, but you need to have a time and place. But during this Advent season, I strongly encourage you, find a time and place where you can physically open the Word and begin to read and begin to see Christ in all of Scripture. But do that. But everything here was very intentional. Everything Jesus did was intentional, and so I believe He also wants us to be intentional. physically open your Bible. And I strongly encourage you because I know so many of you don't. You just don't read your Bibles. I know that because I talk to many people. You don't read your Bibles. Physically open the book. Find a time and place. Why? Because if you don't have a time, if you don't have a place, then you're not gonna do it. You're not gonna just randomly bump into it and do it. You must have a time and place. And so many years ago, I learned this from a pastor, but the greatest and simplest way To build a devotional life in God is find a time and place. This is true for prayer, it's true for Bible reading. And so this took a long time in my life, but I struggled with this for a long time. I would have good seasons and then very bad seasons. I would have stretches of reading the word and then long stretches of not when I was younger. And then finally over time, little by little, there's a time and place. Right when I wake up, that's the first thing I try to do. Not try, I've been doing it, but... I just open my phone, I read the Bible, first thing. But find a time and place, whether it's the first thing in the morning, whether it's late at night, maybe during your lunch break, but you can find a time and place. And by the way, everything in your life is gonna come against it. It's gonna be a war. It's gonna be a war to try to read the Bible every day. Because again, the enemy knows, more than persecution, more than getting you fired from your job, the enemy knows, no, there's a far easier, more effective way to take you away from God. Make you not read the word. Make you not remember the word and believe the word. So it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a war. And so you need to fight for your time and place in God's word. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, I beat my body and make it my slave. This is the person who knew God's grace. But it's because of God's grace I beat my body And make it my slave. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of you, though not I, but the grace of God in me. Paul's saying, I know God's grace. Because of that, I beat my body, right? I get that time and place. So that's the first one. Number two, spiritually open the Word. So you gotta physically open it and read it, but then spiritually open it with pray and read. So you have a time and place, but you also need to pray and read. You know, there's been a trend that I've been hearing lately, but when I talk to especially younger uh, people like students, um, whenever I ask them, oh, how are things going spiritually, they go, yeah, I've been, you know, not that good with reading. And when I first heard that, I'm like, what do you mean, reading? Like the New York Times? Like what what are you talking about, right? Your your textbooks? And then I realized what they meant. They meant reading the Bible. They're like, yeah, I, I could do better reading or I didn't read this week, or yeah, I did better reading this, this past week. And then it was kind of interesting to me hearing that because when I was growing up, nobody ever talked about their devotion time as reading, right? And, and, and you, can, you, can, you can say that if you want. I'm not going to, like, you know, get on your case. You can say that. But the reason why I never heard that growing up is because people knew when I was younger, all the people that I learned from, That this is reading, but it's not really reading. It's not only reading. There's so much more going on. But the Bible is a living word, and God must open it to you. He's going to speak through it. And so what I'm trying to say is there's a spiritual opening of the word. You must spiritually open the word. How? Ask God. Pray and read. Pray. Say, God, I need you to speak to me today through this word. Quoting Paul again, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. This is the things of the Spirit of God. They do not accept it, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually understood. Do you hear that? So if you just come here and you're like, oh yeah, I gotta read. Okay, whatever, I read, (laughs) you know? Then nothing's gonna happen. Paul said the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, like the word. Why? Because they're just foolish to him. They must be understood spiritually. So the spirit must reveal it to you. When you read the Bible, you got to say, God, speak to me. Okay, I'm going to keep saying, yeah, read, but that's fine. It's more than that. God, speak to me. Show me Christ. Show me your glory in here. So regardless of whatever you call it, quiet time, devotional time, or just reading, I don't care what you call it, just know there's got to be a spiritual opening of the word. Otherwise, you get no benefit. So you must have a time and place, and you must pray and read. And remember, the key to hearing from God is being filled by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit, and that's another reason why you're praying, is God, fill me with your Spirit so that I can understand your word and see glorious things in your word. So we must pray. And so brothers and sisters, that is the encouragement that I want to give you guys for this Advent season as we prepare to worship Christ, as we prepare to celebrate his coming on Christmas Day. So with that, we have communion today. So let's just bow our heads. Let's come before him. Jesus is a good God. And even though I got a little excited there, a little loud, I know that Jesus, when he comes, he comes so tenderly. He comes so gently. Like he did for those disciples on Emmaus. but he will come and gently begin to reveal your heart so that you see what's there. He will begin to open the scriptures to you and then he will have intimate fellowship with you. And brothers and sisters, Jesus, he is the answer. Going back to that image of Swiss cheese, we have all these holes in our lives. Jesus really is the answer. If you have questions about identity, your purpose in life, finding community, overcoming temptation and sin, being healed of sickness, having a new fire in your heart for a God. Whatever it may be, Jesus is the answer. So, I know no matter who you are, where you are during this season, I don't even have to talk to you. I just know what you need is Jesus. You need Jesus, He is the answer. So, let's just come before Him. He's here in the midst. Thank you, Lord. I know He's here. Presence is here. His power is here, and His word is here. So, Lord, thank you, Jesus. I know You're here with us, and I pray that You will draw, Lord, draw, draw people here, Lord, to Yourself. Draw us to Yourself during this Advent season, please, Lord God. There are so many people, Lord. We go through life. We have lost the fire for you, and it doesn't have to stay that way. But in just an hour, that that little walk on the Emmaus Road maybe took an hour or two, just two hours at the most. Their whole lives were flipped and transformed. Lord, it doesn't take long. have lost that fire for God God can flip that in a moment in a single service a single afternoon maybe this upcoming Advent season you're going to just spend a quiet afternoon with God and in that moment boom, the fire is back did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us thank you Lord Jesus please do that Lord let's just come before him as we prepare ourselves for communion, but let's just pray and ask God. Ask Jesus to do that for you, what he did for the disciples. That'll be the only prayer topic today. But let's ask Jesus, can you please do what you did for those two disciples? Do it for me. Can you light that new fire in my heart? Open the scriptures. Can you invite me into intimate fellowship with you? a moment doing that and we'll take a reading.